The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our ancestor Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your family, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the country of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And after his father died, God sent him to the country where you now live, He did not give any of it to him for an inheritance, not even a foot of ground. Yet God promised to give it to him as his possession and to his descendants after him. Even though Abraham did not yet have a child. But God told him, your descendants will be outsiders in a foreign country whose citizens will enslave and abuse them for 400 years. But, God said, I will punish the nation they serve, and after these things, they will come out from there and worship me in this place. Then God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and so he became the father of Isaac and circumcised him when he was eight days old. Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and so they sold him into slavery in Egypt. But God was with him. He rescued him from all his troubles and granted him favor and wisdom with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. In fact, Pharaoh was so impressed by Joseph, he put him in charge of all of Egypt, including his own personal affairs. But a famine struck the land, stretching from Egypt to Canaan, which brought great hardship Our ancestors could not find food anywhere. But Jacob heard that there was food in Egypt. So he sent our ancestors there for the first time. And having confirmed that this was true, they went back a second time. And it was then that Joseph revealed his true identity to his brothers and introduced his family to Pharaoh. So Joseph sent a message and invited his father and Jacob and all his relatives to come. Seventy-five people in all went. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our ancestors died. They were later buried in Shechem, where Abraham had purchased a tomb from the sons of Hamor. But as the time drew near for God to fulfill the promise he had made to Abraham, the population of our people greatly increased in Egypt. Eventually, another king, who did not know about Joseph, ruled over Egypt. He exploited our people and was cruel to our ancestors, forcing them to abandon their infant children so that they would die. It was during this time that Moses was born, and he was beautiful to God. For three months, he was hidden at home, but when they could no longer hide him, they abandoned him. But Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and raised him as if he were her own son. 
Moses was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was skilled in his words and deeds. But when Moses was about 40 years old, he felt convicted in his heart to visit his people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being abused by an Egyptian, Moses defended and avenged the abused person by striking the Egyptian dead. He thought his people would understand that God was using him to save them, but they didn't. The next day, two of his fellow Israelites were fighting, and he tried to make peace between them, saying, Men, your brothers, why are you hurting one another? The one who started the fight pushed Moses aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Hearing this response, Moses fled and lived in exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Forty years passed, and in the desert of Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. He went to investigate, and suddenly the voice of the Lord came from the bush, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Moses began to tremble and did not dare look. God said to him, Take the sandals of, off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have seen the agony of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come to rescue them. Now come, I am sending you back to Egypt. And so the same Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? God sent as both ruler and liberator through the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush. This man led them out of slavery, performing wonders and miraculous signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and out in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the Moses who stood between the angels speaking at Sinai and your ancestors assembled in the wilderness and took the life-giving words given to him and handed them over to us. Words our ancestors refused to obey, but instead cast aside, and in so doing, they turned their hearts back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us a God we can see and follow. For this Moses who led us out from Egypt, who knows what has happened to him? It was then that they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought a sacrifice to it and were delighted with what they had done. But God turned away from them, he let them do it their way. He let them worship the stars and the sun as it was written in the prophets. You did not offer to me sacrifices of animals and grain those 40 years in the wilderness, did you, Israel? No, but you made sure to bring the tabernacle of Malak with you and the star of the god Raphon, images that you made to worship. For this, I will exile you beyond Babylon." But our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law made to the exact specifications God had given to Moses. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them. When they took the land from the nations, God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a permanent dwelling place for the God of Jacob.
but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Did my hand not make all these things? You stubborn people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors, always fighting against the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law given by angels, but have not obeyed it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mackenzie. It's hard to feel that, being a Jewish person there at the temple, having that sermon delivered to you. Do you see, even if you know nothing of the culture and what's going on, you can almost feel that sense of, hey, will you give a defense, Stephen, for what you've been doing and saying? Because we know it's wrong, and we know it's wrong because what you're doing is not what we do. This isn't how it's done. That's not what we say. This isn't how we behave. So you need to explain to us why you're doing this, this crazy new thing. And what, is, what, is, what does Stephen say? He says, how new is it? You remember in the past when a messenger of God came to you, what you did? You reject him. It's pretty patterned through the history of Israel. God speaks to the people, and the person that he's appointed as a divine messenger keeps getting rejected. He's kind of winking at them. You see, you're doing that right now. We have at least three weeks where we'll look at this sermon in greater depth. This morning, I just want to look at the, the first few verses, the narratives that he gives related to Joseph and Abraham. And I want to ask you this question to, to dive in to that first half. Have you ever been sort of, uh, imagine yourself engaging with Christianity in some way. Let's say you're looking at a comment thread on Facebook or somebody's post, and you say, man, something just seems off here. It just doesn't really feel Christian. <laughs> it's, just, it's odd. You ever feel that way online? I do, every single time I'm online. Um, what about in the church? You ever been sitting in a church gathering, maybe this exact moment, <laughs> uh, where you say something like, I get that we do this stuff, and I, I know that somebody who's smart sort of said we should do this stuff, but something feels off. It feels kind of like we're missing something here. You can't quite put your finger on it, but something just feels off. I think we all feel that way. I know I do. I feel that way often. Sometimes I assume that this kind of feeling must be relatively modern, you know? It's the byproduct of our information age. Back in the day, things were more simple and clear, but now we have all this information and all this stuff, and it just muddies the waters and makes things so confusing, and so it feels like something's off. But back when things were simpler, it must have been quite a bit better. 
And you think about that, and you say, but we are all sort of prone to wander. And, and then I step back and I say, this sermon that Stephen is delivering, he's doing that 2,000 years ago, not super modern. And you kind of come to that place, you say, the first six chapters of Acts tells the story about a crowd that's unsettled. Something about the life and the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, certainly Stephen, people like Stephen, something about what they're doing is drawing people in. Haven't we seen that movement that Luke describes as he tells the story? Crowds and crowds are gathering. I want to think about that for a second and say, you know, the real Jew, the real Jewish person who, who, who got it, we might say, who understood what they were doing or who they were worshiping. They knew the heart of God. The heart of God was, is, and always will be a heart of loving kindness, a heart of justice, a heart of mercy that never fails, endless provision. They knew this about their God. God provides. He's merciful. He's just. He's loving. He's kind. Their history was one that had moments of living with God in a way that is just profoundly beautiful. Intimate connection with Father God. Love among the community. Love for God. Those moments seem to be pretty short. And, and not, they're not the, the overall character. But they had these moments. It was, a, it, was a, it was a life that was peaceable with neighbors. Remember? I will make you a nation and you will bless the other nations of the world. So there was a mindset of being peaceable with neighbors, welcoming to foreigners, and then there was a heart or a mindset of a shared life, a life of love for God, love for each other. But they had watched this now, if you're in the first century, sitting here at the temple listening to this sermon, you've been born into a kind of Judaism that for many, many years has slowly but surely become a religion in, a, in the sense of bringing divisions and hierarchy and offices and powers, all that kind of stuff as part of that institution, if we will, that religious system. And it was all done for good reason, quote unquote good. And so you're born into this way of life. Now, you're living in this day, we can read in Josephus and some of the other history pieces from their era, that even the Sanhedrin guys who are pushing hard against Stephen were not very well liked. They had heaped so many burdens up on people in the religious system that there was this growing sort of tension. In their day, one could still claim to be Jewish and, and yet be warlike Greedy, racist, selfish, and vain. And I think to the real Jew, that didn't sit very well. You're following a God of loving kindness who welcomes in, and, and you're under a system that has become very racist, very exclusive, very divided. Who's the hierarchical power? 
who must just smile and nod and follow. And there was this weird sort of something isn't right here. If the God we worship is like this, which we know from our Bible, why is it that our, his community of people is like this? I imagine a Jewish husband and wife standing there in the crowd talking. I know, sweetheart, we keep hearing that Jesus and his people are liberals. They're dangerous. They're bad. We keep hearing that they're peddling these new truths and these creative blasphemies. That's what we're told about them. But I got to tell you, so far, I just haven't heard anything like that from this Stephen fella. As far as I can tell, he's not ignoring God. He's honoring him, and he believes, and he seems to really trust the word of God, just like we do. He doesn't even really seem to be twisting scripture like they say he is. It's like he's seen something in the scriptures that we have missed. It's like what he's doing is actually drawing people closer to the true God, not driving people away from God, which is what we're told is happening with Jesus' ministry. I know the New Testament doesn't tell us if anybody in the crowd was actually thinking that, but I like to do that. I like to try to get into that scene. What were people saying and thinking? What were the murmurs in the crowd as Stephen is standing and delivering? Notice that. I think you can draw from what we know that there was this sense of something is off, and there was this sense of Jesus helps us to understand what's off. And the reason I think that was a widespread reality is because we're told that crowds were coming to them by the thousands. <laughs> They're coming to them by the thousands. It, it, it's not just for novelty. They're coming to them because something is happening, something very powerful. Something had been off for far too long. And now Stephen was doing and saying things that had at least two major effects. He was contradicting the tradition significantly. And yet he was listening to the scriptures. He's pushing hard against the tradition while he's listening closely to the scriptures. And therefore is offering people real truth. All right. We say, okay, great. Truth. Everybody's going to get stoked about truth. Right? Who doesn't love the truth? I love the truth. You love the truth. We're truth seekers. We're truth tellers. He's doing something everybody loves. I tell you what, you could have come to me not all that long ago when I was drinking a bottle of whiskey a day and said to me, hey, Ben, I think you've got a drinking problem. That would have been a truthful statement. I would not have liked that truth. I would have said, you think that because you're stupid. That's why you think stupid things like that. That's not truth. I would have just roundly rejected that. Sometimes we're not super excited about the truth. We're not as stoked about it as we like to proclaim that we are. Here's the Bible example. These Jewish guys are waiting for the Messiah every single day. They're talking about the Messiah. They're writing about the Messiah. They're preaching about the Messiah. They're talking about him. And then Stephen comes in and he says, hey, you guys who really love the Messiah, you killed him. Yeah. You don't care about the real Messiah at all. <laughs> not even a little bit. So much so that you've met him you shook hands with him, and then you straight up murdered him. He's said this before. This is what's really getting him riled up. That was a truthful statement. They didn't like him saying it at all. They asked him to stop saying that. 
He did not stop saying that. So, just like they did to Jesus, they charged him with blasphemy. The capital death penalty crime. And they said, well, we're going to move you down the line then, son. And it's almost like Stephen says, okay, okay. Blasphemy means that I'm disrespecting God and his word, so let's go to the scriptures together. Do our best to see if I'm actually unbiblical or if perhaps you guys are mistaken. That is an interesting moment if you think about it. Jesus said similar things to the same kinds of people. You guys wouldn't be all jacked up and worried about who I am if you had actually read the Bible you claim to be experts in. If you had actually listened to the Bible, listened to God speaking through the Bible. Okay, so here they are. And you think about that for a moment. You say, you can literally read the Bible thousands of times. You can study and memorize its words over and over and over. Millions of repetitions through thousands of years. You can teach your children and sing and recite and do all of that stuff. And then here comes Stephen and he says, hey, you missed one of the most central points in the whole thing. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? You can imagine the tension. Thousands of people around, the Sanhedrin here, Stephen's on trial. Say, how does this happen? How can I be that devoted to scripture learning and miss major points? How's that even possible? Could, that, could something like that happen to me? Surely not. Surely not. I mean, we're all right now, as we said, 100 yards away from a Bible school. We've got Bible schools and Bible libraries and Bible apps. We can figure it out. There's no way we're going to miss something these days. I would say it absolutely is possible to read your Bible your entire life and totally miss huge, crucial, important points. How does that happen? Well, here's, here's a nutshell way to say it. I'm going to open this up here, and I'm going to talk about it in various ways through the next couple of sermons. When a person reads the Bible through tradition rather than with tradition, bad things always happen. I get that little quip from the professor I've been studying under, but I think it's really good. When you read the Bible through tradition instead of with tradition, things get messed up fast. I know it's a heavy statement. I want to circle back to it. But for now, know this. Stephen is reading the Old Testament with tradition. The judges condemning him are reading the Bible through tradition. Stephen believes that his, his whole power, everything that makes him influential and powerful and good in this world, he believes is related to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. These guys believe that their power comes from the approval of other people, which is seen in offices and in titles and in other people saying, yes, you're the authority figure. That's a very different source of power than the Holy Spirit. Those who live in the true power of Christ fear no other power. Who are the fearful ones in the story? Is it Stephen? No. He fears no other power because he stands in the true power of Christ. Their power is only as good as mankind's approval. 
Once that approval is gone, they know they've lost it, and so they're fearing the loss of power. So, here's Stephen. He's speaking to this crowd. He says, check it out. Check it out. You asked me a question. You said, will you please defend yourself? By the third line, Stephen is talking about the great founder, Abraham. And then, as McKenzie just said, he rolls out the whole story of Israel. You're sitting there listening to McKenzie preach this sermon, and you're just kind of saying, okay, why are we walking through the entire history of it? Joseph, the many colors, I get all that. What's this have to do with anything? You say, well, why? Why is he walking through this whole story of Israel? This is very odd. Imagine if you came to me with a serious accusation. Hey, Ben, we heard you committed a crime. What do you have to say for yourself? And I'm like, ah, let me answer that. Back in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and this is how our country was, you know, you would just be like, we're talking to you, bro, about a crime. <laughs> and I start to weave in this big, long national history. It just feels kind of odd. What is he doing? Is he just establishing some common ground? By referring back to these great pillars of the faith, he might be sort of meeting them where they're at, saying, hey, guys, look. We're cool, we're on the same team, don't get all fired up. I think he's doing that to some degree, but I think it's a lot deeper. I think he's meeting them on a common ground. Look, we both, we both believe that Abraham was real. We both like the Old Testament. I think it's deeper, though. He's not just saying, hey, I know you disagree, but at least we can agree with Abraham and Joseph and Moses, yeah? Let's coexist, at least. He's not, he's not doing just that. I think he's saying, you've charged me with blasphemy, which means that you think I don't actually respect God, but it's not God that I'm disrespecting, it's you. I'm sorry about that, but it's got to be done at this point. It's not God that I'm disrespecting, it's you guys, and that's really why you're mad. The crowds are gathering to hear from the Spirit of God, not from you, and that makes you jealous. And that's what we've seen in the story from Luke already. Their fear is about the crowds going off after somebody else. They're not particularly worried about much more. Their fear is the loss of their status and their power. I'm here to help you, says Stephen, by speaking the Spirit of God, but you don't like it because you're jealous. You've convinced yourselves that God resides in the temple, in a holy place, you're afraid of any idea that suggests he really doesn't. This is a big deal. You, will, you saw it as they, right before we get to the sermon, they're upset about what they've heard about Jesus' talk about the temple, which is that he's going to tear it down and totally destroy it. So they come to the Sanhedrin and they say, he said he's going to tear it down. He's going to tear down the holy place of God. And they get fired up. They say, no, 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 that's where God is. You can't do it. It's beautiful. It's glorious. The temple it's what gives God glory in the world. And here comes Stephen saying, yeah, it really doesn't. <laughs> in fact, it's especially not doing that now because of what you have turned it into. Remember how Jesus said, you've turned the temple, which was supposed to be a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. So here he comes. You guys feel your influence and power decreasing and you're scared because you're losing something that you value a lot. Your power, your influence, your popularity. 
the public popularity you receive from these religious systems and programs that you've built. The nations around and other people have commented. They've given you lots of likes about the amazing gloriousness of all this, but it's not glorious because of what's been going on in your hearts. So, he opens with Abraham, key figure in the old Bible, and he works to show them the truth that has always been there. To them, then, it feels like a very new truth from an old Bible. And if you ever come to me, or any wise Christian, saying, hey, I found something brand new in the Bible. Ain't nobody ever seen it before. You know, your red flags are flying everywhere. You're like, I doubt that's true. Okay. But it's not a new truth at all. It's been there from the get-go. Stephen is simply saying, I'm not making new stuff up. I'm showing you what was always deeply embedded in the story. Let's look at it. It's a big move. You need to step away from your traditions and all that you think you know, all that you've found safety in your people, your country, your relatives, and you need to walk away from it. I think Stephen is telling his audience to do that, but he's doing it subtly through the story of Abraham, which is what? Abraham, says God, you need to get up and step away from your relatives and your country and go. Go where, God? Give me the vision. Give me the clear path in the right direction. No, just get up and move, bro, and then I will show you where you're going to go. Stephen is pointing back to this moment where Abraham had to leave everything that he felt comfortable in and all that he knew to set out after God. He had to unload some stuff if he was going to carry on in the real journey with God. There are no guarantees except for one. You will ultimately survive, God says to Abraham. I'll make you the father of many nations. Your nations will bless the entire world. Just go. But how? Where? I know you want those things you can see and hold and measure. I'm not going to give them to you, though. Rise and go. Same kind of things Jesus said to his disciples often. Rise and come after me. Follow. Abraham goes out of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of what he knows and believes into something new. Now, in case you missed it, Stephen reminds them he showed up as Stephen calls Yahweh, the God of glory. And he showed up where? Well, in the holy temple that we built so beautifully, of course. No, he showed up in the land of the pagan Chaldeans. There's no temple. There's no Judaism. There's nothing. Why? Because God's glory is self-manifesting. It does not need human hands to bring it about. It's not something that human beings bring about. Isn't that interesting? This is something we have to really get a hold of, my friends, living in American Christianity today. We don't make God more glorious by doing things that the world says is glorious. We can reflect and reveal God's glory by being like God is. Sometimes we mistake that to say, but, 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 but our world loves huge, beautiful buildings. So let's build huge, beautiful buildings and then 
then everybody will see. And I'm a big fan of huge, beautiful buildings. With, I love stained glass. I love all that stuff. But insofar as we think that that's what's bringing God glory, we can have beautiful stuff and wicked hearts. And there's no glory in that. And the world says, even a pagan world looks on that and says, you guys are just kind of hypocritical. Church makes more sense if you admit you just are all pretending. You know? We don't want to be in that spot. He says, it was God who appeared, God who spoke, God who sent, God who promised, God who punished, God who rescued. You guys didn't make God great. God is great, and he invited you into his life. And now I'm inviting you, Stephen, I believe, is saying, to continue on in his life, but you've missed so much and gotten so enculturated with the system you built, you can't even see the Messiah when he wants to give you a hug in the flesh. He's offering you a hug, and you stab him and hang him up on a tree. I think they're squirming at this point. So in verse 8, he offers some assurance. I think, I think this is what he's doing. I don't know for sure. He says, then God gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. That's a big deal for the Jewish mindset, being circumcised. He gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so he became the father of Isaac and circumcised him. He became the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of the 12 patriarchs. These guys are all loaded up for bear. They're like, where's this punk going? I don't know where he's going. Wait a minute. Oh, no. Wait a minute. He says, he says, we're talking about the God of Abraham and Jacob and I. Okay. Okay. Check. Circumcision. Yeah. Check. We're on the same page. Patriarchs. Is he honoring the, yeah, he's honoring the patriarchs. Okay. Stephen seems to be deeply Jewish. He seems to get it. Remember though, says Stephen, yes, I am with you. Yes, I get it. But remember, here he hits him again with the truth that they've missed. Those patriarchs, which is where our 12 tribes of Israel stem from, good guys, we respect them highly, those were the ones who booted Joseph out, <laughs> okay? Same kind of theme. Do you see a theme, fellas? Those patriarchs are the ones who kicked out the Savior, Joseph. Joseph was God's chosen guy, and they were Jealous of him, extremely such. It wasn't God's chosen savior that was mistaken. It was God's chosen people. The powerful people ganged up against the true messenger. You know, that's Stephen's way of like, wink, wink. Mm -hmm. Power guys, you're ganging up on God's messenger here. The patriarchs weren't the picture of a divine life. Joseph was. Joseph is the type. He's the type of person we see in Jesus. Rejected by, assumed by, or loved by. Where are these divisions at? These brothers wanted Joseph out of the way. They sold him. They tried to kill him. And indeed, they thought they had killed him. But they were wrong. There's maybe another wink, wink, wink. You guys think you killed Jesus? Guess what? He's coming back. He already is alive again. He's not in a pit. Joseph didn't stay in the pit. You guys think you put Jesus in a pit? God's going to raise him just the same way Joseph? You see this pattern that Stephen is trying to establish. And I think he's saying to them something like this. 
And I think he's saying this to us. This is the place where as a pastor preaching, I can only say so much, but I ask the Holy Spirit at this moment to help what I say next register into your life in the way that it connects with your being in the deepest, most transformative way. I think that he's saying something to them like this. If you want to go further on the journey with God, there is some unloading that you're going to need to do. I say that personally to you from me as your friend and pastor. I say that also to our whole community. If we want to go further on with God, real Jesus living, there is some unloading that we will need to do. Abraham had to leave all that he knew. Joseph had to leave all that he knew. Moses will have to do the same thing. The Spirit of God is alive and is now actively renewing human beings who are in Jesus. It's not our religious programming. What do we trust? It's not our temple. What do we trust? What would you feel the greatest loss over? Losing our building or losing our ability to love God and love others? Which one makes you say, (gasps) here's a quote that I want to put up from a well-known teacher and leader in the area of spiritual disciplines. I ran across this this week. This is his observation on where we are as a church today in a very broad sense. Steve, if you could put the slide up. Here we go. Christianity is a lifestyle. It's a way of being in the world that is simple. It's nonviolent. It's shared and loving. However, we made it into an established religion and all that goes with that and avoided the lifestyle change itself. One could be warlike, greedy, racist, selfish, and vain in most of Christian history and still believe that Jesus is one's personal Lord and Savior. The world has no time for such silliness anymore. The suffering on earth is too great. Some of you have looked at where we are. You, like me, have asked a question. What's the vision? Where is Central Bible Church headed? Who are we? What are we about? These questions are beautiful, and they're good, and we would be foolish to answer them too quickly. But there's something in this that connects to Stephen's presence in this moment in Acts that sinks deeply into my heart and soul, where I say, God is moving us, the church, into a place that is more and more and more willing to carefully assess what we've actually been doing. Is it actually empowered by the true spirit of God or has it been empowered and driven by the approval of others? And I think these last lines, the world doesn't have time for silliness like that anymore. The idea that I can call Jesus my personal Lord and Savior and still remain hostile toward other people. It's just not a Christian. 
It's nothing but fake. Stephen is holding before these men a truth that's very hard to swallow, and yet it is so loving and beautiful and good. As we press on into the next chapter of church life together, there's un- unloading that we have to do. And I think some of it looks exactly like what Stephen is getting at. Once and for all, we have to unload ourselves from the death and the burden of thinking that God is located in a building. I know that we'll all happily say that because we've all been taught to say that. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's not in the building. But think about your reaction to this statement. We are going to lose our building here. What does that statement do for you? If it were true, by the way, I'm not projecting anything or predicting anything. But if that were true, what do you think? (gasps) A heritage has been lost, my memories, all the stuff that this building does. Maybe you say, what? Whose fault is it? Something's bad goes, there's a scandal. We start to react to the things that we might lose that we actually love. And it challenges us. Once and for all, I think, we need to unload ourselves from the death and the burden of thinking that God's glory is manifested through excellent programs or places that we create. God's glory is manifested through our willingness to share our money with the church and with our neighbors. People in East Portland will see and experience the glory of heaven itself when a group of Christians in its midst in unison says, we refuse to do violence to one another, physical, spiritual, emotional, psychological. We're not going to harm each other anymore. We're going to help. Man, that's a beautiful witness to the world around us. People in your apartment and on your street see and experience the glory of God when you are a Christian who is never fighting to get your own satisfaction, always learning to love and accept the other. People everywhere you go, in the digital worlds of Facebook posts and comment threads, or in the brick-and-mortar buildings of school and work and your home, wherever you go, when you steer clear of judgment, and suspicion, and condemnation, and selfishness, when you refuse to be prideful and pretending, God's glory is shown, and it's unmistakable. Many of us have been reading our very old Bibles for a very long time, and that's good, but I believe that we have missed Jesus' simple, nonviolent, shared and loving way of life oftentimes. Instead, we saw power and hierarchy, institution, human programming, offices, finances. We saw all that stuff, and we've been chasing it for too many years. Our call as Christians today is to open our hearts and minds to God over and again, to read the Bible with tradition, not through it, That means we respect our tradition, and we know it, so it is with us, but we're not governed by it. Instead, we follow the Spirit of God. To read your Bible through tradition is to say, I have to read it and do it this way because somebody else told me to. 
We respect and revere and hold tradition close, but we don't read the Bible through it. Specifically, I believe that God's Spirit has been speaking to Central Bible for many years. I've done a lot of work in the past bit of time looking at old records of surveys and church assessments that have been done on this body for decades. And I want to say this, if we want to go further on the journey with God, there is some unloading we need to do, and we'll be talking about that as we go, and it's beautiful. It's a good thing. Specifically, I believe that God's Spirit has been speaking to me too, Ben, and I suspect to you, perhaps for a very long time, and I'll leave it here. If you want to go further on the road with God, if you want to enter that life of infinite power, fearlessness, peace, and the kind of love that we've only read about so far, then we've got some unloading to do. Let's pray and ask God to help us with that so we unload what's right and hold firmly to the faith and what is true. Father, we never want to lessen our grip on what is true. We never want to relax on holding firmly to the faith and your church and you. So we're going to grip tightly to all that is true and good, but God, you know that we are a people who are prone to wander, and sometimes we mix things into this, this church life that ought not be there. I ask that in these coming weeks and months, as we discern, as we think about changing and growing as a church, through your spirit, would you give us a courage to speak openly with one another, to dialogue with love, to help one another see and discern what we're becoming because of you. Thank you for not abandoning us. Thank you for not giving us strange codes to break, hoping we can figure it out. But instead, you're present and you love us. If you didn't, Jesus, I don't know, I, don't, I wouldn't be here but you do love us greatly. Help that be the thing that, that drives everything else that we do in this world. Let your love compel us. We love you. We trust you. Amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.